Hi, and welcome to the National Shooting Sports Foundation's podcast series, Gun Industry Speaks. As the trade association for the firearms and ammunition industry, we're often talked about in the news and on social media. Throughout this series, we'll be speaking for ourselves. We'll be covering who we represent, what our goals are, and what we do to promote real solutions for safer communities. My name is Elizabeth McGuigan, and I'm the Director of Policy and Legislative Research for the NSSF. I'm here with our president, Joe Bertozzi. If you're just joining us, we would recommend going back and starting with our first episode, in which we covered who we are as the Trade Association for the Firearms and Ammunition Industry. Today we are going to take a step back and answer some listener questions and provide updates on some prior topics we've already covered. Joe, some of the questions we've received are more for background on what exactly happens during a background check to buy a gun. And we skimmed the surface of this in our second episode, but let's take a deeper dive into Background Checks 101. We know every federally licensed retailer must essentially run a background check every time they sell a gun. And can you tell us what happens behind the scenes during one of these background checks? Yeah, sure. It's a great question. I think a good place to start would be to describe a little bit how the states and territories mm -hmm. perform their background checks. Okay. Um, so in 36 states and territories, the FFL, that's the gun mm -hmm. retailers, the gun shop uh, folks, they contact the FBI directly. Okay. That's a direct NICS type of a scheme there, um, directly to the NICS uh, database. In 13 states, they're called point of contact states, the retailers contact the state agency mm -hmm. who then run the checks through the NICS database. So okay. it's kind of an, an intermediary step between the state uh, retailers and the, um, and the NICS system. And then there are seven states which are called partial point of contact states. And in this, in this particular scheme, the state police perform background checks on handgun sales. Okay. And then the NICS FBI system performs the checks on long gun transfers. So again, three slightly different schemes, mm -hmm. but all with the same uh, intent of finding out who is prohibited so that we can avoid making the sales. So that's kind of the first cut of this, of this thing, right? Then, of course, they enter the name and descriptive mm -hmm. information that you provide on the 4473. That's the form you fill out when you, when you go to buy a gun or a retail, right. uh, retail store. Once that happens, they contact the NICS or the point of contact, the designated agency, whatever. Mm -hmm. There's three main databases that are run through, and that's the National Crime Information Center, mm -hmm. so NCIC. And that contains information on, for example, uh, if you're a wanted person, Right. If there's a protection order taken out against you, um, that is where that database is going to capture that information. Okay. The second one is called the Interstate Identification Index, mm -hmm. which the shorthand for that is called the Triple I Index, right. or Triple I Database, and that contains criminal history records. Mm -hmm. And the third is the actual NICS indices, uh, and this is the database that NICS checks for prohibited persons um, under federal or state law. Okay. And that's Conoza three big, um, the three big databases database that the NICS folks use. Uh, and then, of course, if you're not a U.S. citizen, mm -hmm. there is the Department of Homeland Security check. They do a check with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement folks for non-U.S. citizens. And then they also, your name is also run against the terrorist screening database. Okay. Uh, and if you get a, if there's a, a hit on that, mm -hmm. then the federal government decides whether they want to go in and, and uh, you may not get a deny, right. but, but they may ask, they may come in and do something later on with that person individually right. uh, if, they're on that, if they're on that particular terrorist screening list. Now, if they're on the terrorist screening list, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a terrorist. That doesn't mean they're a prohibited person. That doesn't mean anything besides somebody has flagged their name or a similar name 
Um, we know there are over a million names and there's a lot of errors on it. So while it's great that their name is bounced against the list just to see if there's, you know, call for more investigation. Right, we've, seen a, lot of, we've seen a lot of false yeah. positives on that list and right. that's part of the problem with that particular database. It's important yes. uh, and it has to be looked at, but it's not necessarily accurate right. and that's where more investigation is generally needed to be done. Right. So no matter whether the state is a point of contact state and they go through a state designated agency or it's a state where the FFL goes directly to the FBI, these databases get checked Correct. For, every single, for every single retailer transaction. And um, this seems like a lot of information, but how long does it take to check through all these databases? I know it's called instant checks. Are they really instant? Well, I'll tell you what, it's pretty good. It's, yeah. it's pretty quick. Uh, when you go to a gun shop, assuming you're not on one of the lists, you don't get a right, false positive right. against one of the databases. Uh, it happens in a matter of seconds, uh, maybe no more than a couple of minutes at the most. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, if you go in on a, on a holiday or, you know, a, right, a, a, sort of a peak. You know, before hunting season starts perhaps or yeah. a peak time, that could slow the system down. But sure. generally, it's very, very quick. That's wonderful. And that's something too that, you know, as the trade association for the firearms industry, we've done a lot to sort of advocate for more resources for NICS to make sure they have all of the, the tools and resources to make sure those, those checks are pretty instant. There are cases where there's a delay, right? Where you don't have an immediate proceed or immediate deny. Can you talk about, a little bit about the three-day delay? Right, under the federal regulations, mm -hmm. um, the, the NICS system has three business days to ensure that mm -hmm. the records have been searched properly. So if there's any kind of match, whether it's a false positive or an, right, actual, right. an actual hit against one of these databases, uh, they've got to contact state mm -hmm. and local sometimes officials to, to make sure that they're, they have accurate information, accurate sure. data in this, before they start denying somebody a uh, right, you know, a constitutional right, mm -hmm. they have the three business days to get this done. Okay. Um, and that's really important to remember that. If, but if it falls on a legal holiday, you know, it's three business days. So right. if there's a weekend or a legal holiday, that may get extended slightly. Mm -hmm. But the point is they have to do their, their due diligence to make sure the person getting the firearm is actually not prohibited and not the actual person right. on one of these databases. I mean, names could be common. You know, you end up right. with, with a, what they say, a false positive. But there is a three business day rule uh, for making these transfers. Okay. Now we hear a lot about the three-day delay where a retailer may legally transfer a gun as allowed uh, after three business days if there's no clear proceed or deny from NICS. And we should note here that according to our surveys of members, most of our retailers will not choose to uh, transfer a firearm if there's a delay, even though they are perfectly allowed to do so under federal law. But our members care deeply about not allowing prohibited people to obtain firearms, and they have full discretion about who they sell a gun to. But it's also important to note that, the, that these delays are rare, right Joe? Yeah, they are. I mean, about, according to the NICS uh, records that we've seen, 91% mm -hmm. of the millions of checks that are done every year are done really immediately. immediately. That's just, you know, up or down, yes yep. or no, right out of the gate, 91% um, are, are going to be a pass-fail. Mm -hmm. There's about 9% that are, that do go into this delayed status, but the overwhelming majority of those are cleared up very, very quickly uh, because, again, they're finding it's either some clerical error right. or there's a name that's confusingly similar to something else or someone mm -hmm. else. So those are done pretty very, pretty quickly. Um, in the rear instance, that there is a delay and a gun is actually transferred within the three business day, right. pursuant to the three business day rule, 
uh, it's like one one hundredth of a percent mm -hmm. where the F, where the ATF has to go back and actually retrieve that firearm that's been transferred. It's a very very tiny percentage, but nonetheless, it's important, and the ATF does get involved right. to retrieve these firearms when uh, when such a thing should happen. So it's rare, but there's a process in place to there make sure that ATF can retrieve any firearms. For sure. When looking at real solutions for safer communities, we want to make sure that we are making an impact on the effectiveness of all background checks, which brings us back to our Fix Next initiative. Joe, can you review what that program entails? Yeah, Fix Next was started in about 2013 by the NSSF. Mm -hmm. There were several states that were not including the mental health prohibiting records right. in the Nix database. Um, so we worked state by state with state legislatures around the country and we actually got the laws changed in 16 mm -hmm. states so that these states now are including the mental health, the prohibiting records right. uh, in the NICS database. And again, I think it's important to clarify that we're not looking for any mental health records. Right. This isn't like therapy notes. We this don't care about <laughs> right. that. The, 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 dealers, the dealers who are the first line of defense mm -hmm. against a bad person getting a gun, they don't care about therapist notes. They only care about those records that are under that would make a person prohibited under right. federal law from possessing right. a firearm. So that's what we've been focusing on. And th those three those three things mm -hmm. are, if the person was involuntarily committed, right. whether they were adjudicated by a court to be dangerously mentally ill, mm -hmm. or whether they pled guilty by reason of insanity. If those three prohibiting factors are present, we want the states to put that data in the database. Absolutely. So that when the retailer makes a sale, he or she can be confident that they're, that they're not giving the gun to someone who shouldn't have it. Right. Um, and again, we want to make sure that only those records is what, that's what we care about. Only those are what we care They're about. They're prohibiting records, Correct. right? The, re the relevant ones. Yeah, that's, that's so important to know because the last thing anyone in our industry wants to do is to stigmatize somebody from, you know, getting mental health support or to create an environment of fear about going to see a professional or access mental health resources. That's certainly not our goal here. Um, Fix Nix is about the legal, re legal records that show a person is prohibited under law from owning a gun. Right. And to measure the success of our victories in the 16 states that you mentioned, as well as the federal Fix Nix Act, which was enacted last year, um, we have to request the data from Nix. Uh, we do it every few months through a Freedom of Information Act request. And our latest data came in actually after our last Fix Nix episode uh, aired. So Joe, tell us, what does the latest data show in terms of our progress on Fix Nix? Just to put it into, into context, in 2013, when we launched Fix Nix, there were about 1.7 million records mm -hmm. in the NICS database. Right. As a result of our efforts, um, though that number now stands at 5.7 million records, which is an That's increase crazy. of 241%. And yeah. I think it's really important to, to point out that this was a solely industry initiative. It was. This yeah. is something that we felt strong enough about to actually lobby mm -hmm. the states uh, to get this information into the database. 16 states did it. And just to kind of put it into into some, pers some more sure. perspective in terms of raw numbers. In 2012, Pennsylvania had submitted exactly one record to the NICS database. So probably a test one. case. A, right. a test sure. case. <laughs> uh, now, in 2019, they've submitted now over 890,000 records. Wow. Okay, New Jersey, similarly, they did 12, 12 or 17, something like that, some small mm -hmm. number in 2012. Now they have over 480,000 records in the NICS system. Uh, and that, again, it's growth. when someone sells a gun mm -hmm. at retail, they want to be certain that the person receiving that firearm is not prohibited by in some fashion. Right. These numbers are going to protect the public because those records are now more complete and correct 
And again, they are the first line of defense. That's a real important and significant development. And Joe, why did the industry take this on as a priority? When you look at the, the overall intent of a mm -hmm. background check is to make sure that you're screening out those folks that aren't eligible to have a firearm. Right. If the data in the system is no good mm -hmm. or not there, as the case of some of these states, right. um, that's a problem. The retailers are, and you can't emphasize this enough, they're the front line of preventing right. access to firearms by prohibited people. So they want to make sure they can rely on the data that's there. Absolutely. In order to do that, the data has to be in there. I mean, you right. look at some of these states, and I'm not, you know, not to pick on mm -hmm. states, because there are a number of states in the same, same boat. You take a look at a state that had one record in 2012, now has over 890,000 records in 2019 due to industry efforts. Uh, it's all about making sure that the data is good right. and it can be relied upon by our retailers. And Absolutely. that is safer for the entire community because people getting these guns are now eligible to have these firearms. Right. It's great when we can so clearly see that a program that, cre that we created and championed is having such an impact on the quality of background checks. And we do have other programs that are focused on reducing criminal access to guns. We know from government surveys of inmates that most criminals, they get their firearms on the black market, they steal them, they get them from friends. Um, and that doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do to help prevent their access. We talked in earlier episodes about initiatives such as Don't Lie for the Other Guy, our anti-straw purchasing program, and Operation Secure Store, our effort that uh, we help uh, prevent robberies and burglaries from retailers. And we know obviously crime trend Crime rate trends are driven by numerous factors outside of our industry's control, but we see our programs as helping to contribute to the steady decline in violent crime. What did we learn from the most recent FBI crime stat release? Yeah, a few weeks ago the FBI uh, put out their, their latest crime report for 2018, Right. and we're seeing that violent crime is down 3.3% compared to 2017. Uh, a decrease in all type of crime was mm -hmm. also seen at the same time. So this is really good. The trend has been, tr has been trending downward for many years, mm -hmm. and violent crime is actually dropping, uh, despite perhaps what you might see on TV. Right. Uh, but despite violent crime has been dropping for 20 years straight. Yeah. Um, we also see that homicides with firearms mm -hmm. are down 7% over 2017. Another good trend, even as firearms in circulation are increasing, homicides with firearms are actually on the decline, and they have been declining. Right. Um, the rate of violent crime is dropping, as well as the number of violent crimes are dropping. So those are really positive statistics. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also seeing that um, with some of the calls to ban modern sporting rifles, right. we're seeing that the latest report shows that homicides with rifles of any kind mm -hmm. is less than with knives, with clubs, or with <laughs> hands or feet. Right. I mean, so we talk about banning certain certain tools or objects, right. but, but really, if you're looking at that, then knives are certainly more likely to, to uh, be involved in homicides yes, than yeah. actually rifles of any kind. Right. Whether modern sporting rifles or single shot 22s, mm -hmm. rifles of any kind are actually less than knives or clubs or hands or feet. Right, which isn't new. I mean, that's the same that we see every year. Um, and the continued general decline in violent crime rates is great news. And the industry continues to work on our existing and our new programs to help make sure our communities are even safer. Now we have time to cover one more topic we received questions about. Um, in our episode on background checks, we mentioned that all federally, federally licensed retailers are required to run a background check before transferring a firearm. And the questions we received are about transfers between two private individuals. So under federal law, these sales do not require a federal background check. 
Some argue that if an individual is selling guns from his or her personal collection, they should have to register with the government as a retailer and follow all the applicable laws, including background checks. And this isn't a new concept, we've heard it before, but it's another area where there's little information in the mainstream media about what the implications of this would be. Can you talk about what it means to be, quote, engaged in the business? Right. That's, that term comes out of the ATF regulations uh -huh. well, with regard to what an FFL, Federal Farms Licensee, actually is. That right. is someone who is um, approved by law to be able to transact this type of business. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that keeps coming up uh, in this definition is that someone who is, devotes time, attention, and labor to dealing in farms. And then the next phrase here I think is really important, as a regular course of trade or business. Okay. Um, they require, I mean, they, they make that statement in there right. as part of a livelihood that is selling guns as a, as a business, right? right? As a regular course of business. But they also say it does not include someone who makes occasional sales mm -hmm. or sells off part or, or all of their collection. Now, interestingly, this, this topic actually changed during the Clinton years. Right. Clinton years, anyone who was going to sell a big part of their collection uh -huh. would have to become an FFL. They'd, have, they'd be required by law to become a, a dealer right. to be able to do this. But during the Clinton years, they said, no, that's, that's way too much. We mm -hmm. have way too many FFLs now. We need to cut back on that. So they restricted that to those with, say, brick and mortar establishments, yeah. not some guy selling off part of his or her um, uh, collection, collection that they've had over the years. Off. So yeah. they've kind of, so now we're kind of, you know, everything old is new again. They're kind of swinging back to that, that philosophy. Yeah. But really that's, you know, unless you're engaged as a regular course of trade or business, mm -hmm. you're not going to be considered an, uh, eligible to have an FFL. And why does this matter in the current debate? Well, it's like anything else. It's this law of unintended consequences. Right. If, if everybody that has a collection of firearms were to be required to become a dealer, mm -hmm. there are a lot of practical matters that come into play here. For example, in the town I live in, there are zoning restrictions. Right. So where I live, I couldn't become a dealer. Right. So I would have to move or somehow, other, I don't know how I would get rid of my, my collection. Open I mean, a storefront somewhere. Yeah, open a storefront yeah. where, where, where I could actually have my collection of firearms mm -hmm. to sell. Um, but that's a real, that's a real thing. And, and towns and cities all over the country have various zoning laws mm -hmm. for where firearms retailers can operate. Sure. So there's that, as a practical matter, there's that. Um, and then you have the issue of ATF comes by about every year to mm -hmm. inspect FFLs. As we want them to. And we it, want them yeah, to do that. Exactly. There's no question that that's, that's not a bad thing. Right, but right. So now you have to open your home. If you're a collector, mm -hmm. you have to open your home to an ATF inspection every year. That seems a bit intrusive. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, it might, be, it might be a, have a chilling effect for those that are actual avid collectors mm -hmm. uh, if they have to become a licensee, knowing they're gonna, that they're going to have books and records and their home is going to be inspected, uh, essentially right. searched every year by the ATF. Um, you have you also have the issue of resource allocation. Mm. The, the ATF, uh, and by the way, the industry as a, we've lobbied to get them more money to be more in more places, yes. right? So they can inspect dealers and and, and enforce the, the laws. Yeah, as we want written. that from ATF. We want that, but if if now everybody who has a collection of firearms is, has to be licensed, and the ATF is required by law to inspect them, well, mm. I think they're going to be spending their time uh, instead of looking at real criminal right, elements, right. they're going to be doing administrative paperwork, things like that with these so-called, you know, home fronts or anybody with an FFL. Yeah. So that, that's a problem. So you, you, you're going to have field operations being affected by this yeah. increase, potential increase uh, in FFLs. Mm -hmm. And of course, the most obvious thing is 
there's no evidence that that's going to reduce crime of course not. Uh, or right. violence in any way. Right. So it's an academic exercise, perhaps. And again, the Clinton administration reduced the number of FFLs right. intentionally right. so they can focus on the big picture. Mm -hmm. uh, and now some people are saying, uh, and I don't, know, I don't know how successful it's going to be, but the argument at least is get more people licensed and you'll have right. less problems. I'm not so sure there's any evidence to support that at all. Yeah, it's definitely another situation where there's a real solution that doesn't hold unintended consequences, which, as you said, is enforcement of the existing law. Um, and as you said, the, the firearms and ammunition industry, we support increased resources for ATF, and we want ATF to enforce the law. Uh, individuals who are engaged in the business but are operating without a license are already breaking the law, and ATF should hold them accountable. So I want to say, Joe, thank you. That's all of our time for today. Thanks to you and thank you for listening. Please join us uh, next time for another deep dive into the issues facing our communities today and how the gun industry is working for real solutions for safer communities.